Thank you for listening to this Q&A session of Questioning Christianity. We hope you'll continue exploring Christianity by requesting your free copy of Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. Free copies will be shipped while supplies last. To get your copy, go to gospelandlife.com slash free. Again, that's gospelandlife.com slash free. So uh, I'm just going to, a couple questions like this, so I'm going to try to summarize them together. Uh, appreciate that you gave some nuance of some of the problems with the traditional identity. However, you said there are severe problems with the inside-out modern identity. But don't Christians look inward to find Jesus in their heart? It sounds like a modern identity inside-out. Are there severe problems that come with that? Are there severe problems that come with? With basically this, they're identifying that isn't Christianity an inside-out faith where you believe in your heart. So aren't there problems, therefore, with Christianity? No, listen, the, the, whoever asked that question, is you're very perceptive. Christianity is both inside and out. In other words, it's not looking outside or only inside. It's looking inside and out. So, for example, um, you do have to know yourself. It, uh, one theologian put it this way, your knowledge of yourself and your knowledge of God increase or decrease together. So, for example, um, Peter was told by Jesus Christ, you're going to deny me three times. You're a coward, Peter. And Peter said, I am the bravest of the disciples. He said, if everybody else abandons you, I won't. And then, of course, he went on (laughs) to deny Jesus three times. So you have to ask yourself the question, um, uh, how could he have been that stupid about who he was? He looked into his heart, and he saw nothing but bravery when actually there was cowardice there. And here's the reason why. Peter's, when he said, I'm better than all the other apostles, Peter's identity was based not on Christ's love for him, but on his love for Christ. In other words, he said, I love you more than all of these. So his, even though he was very close to Jesus, you might call him very religious, he actually had a, uh, a, an identity based on his performance. And it's partly because, I mean, he, in other words, he says, uh, I, I, the reason I'm, I feel good about myself is because uh, I'm, I'm the most faithful and brave of all the disciples. Now, when you're basing your, um, your identity on your performance, what that means is you can't really look inside your heart and, and see what's there. So if your identity is based on being brave, if you look inside your heart and see cowardice, you melt down, like you, you're, the very basis of your identity is gone. You don't even have a self left. So you have to screen it out, you see. And this theologian, when he said, the more you know God, the more you know yourself, and the more you know yourself, the more you know God. Only when you see that you actually are, what the Christians would say, a sinner that needs salvation, will you turn to God. And only if you actually know God's love can you see and admit you're a sinner? Do you see how those things go together? They're symbiotic, uh, and they, they kind of increase and decrease together. And that's the reason why we would never say uh, Christian identity is only outward or only inward, which is, we say, is it a problem? Uh, I think it's messy. I'm not sure it's a problem. Uh, generally what happens is you see a little bit more of yourself, you look inside and you see some things that you don't like, and you reach out toward God. And the more you know of God and the more you begin to understand his love and what he did through Jesus Christ, then that, then that enables you to admit more about yourself. And then the more you can see the truth of yourself, the more you can appreciate and turn to God. So they, 
when I say it's, it's messy, and it, it also it's, it's, you might say, cyclical, rather than just simply, I do this, and then I'm okay. Uh, so the Christian identity is something you actually live into over your, the rest of your life. Because somebody's going to ask this question. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, undermine this question. You're going to say, hey, I know some Christians, and you know what? They're not radically different than the rest of us. They get insecure, and they are unhappy, and they get criticism. The fact is it takes the rest of your life to live into that identity, but you can do it increasingly by going inside and out. I like this. It says, as you explained at the start, you haven't established that Christianity is true. My current source of identity feels quite livable. In fact, I'm happy. How might I compare my current source of identity with the Christian faith without becoming a Christian? Well, now, what was that? Read the last sentence again. The last sentence. How might I compare my current source of identity with the Christian faith without becoming a Christian? Oh, well, I'm going to, I, I, uh, I would submit that if you're happy, that means that you've got a identity based on some kind of performance, um, some kind of standards of performance, and right now, you're hitting, you're hitting the standards. You're, you know, you're, you're hitting your numbers, as they say in business. You're, you're, you're uh, you know, in business, you know, you say, we're hoping to grow over the next two years like this. We're hoping our profits will go up. And if you keep hitting those numbers, you feel good. And right now, you're hitting your numbers. I've, um, I've, I've tried to say, for example, I think that even if it's traditional or if it's, uh, if, it, if you have a, I don't know who you are, of course, uh, that, that performance can be something you do more inside a traditional identity or a modern identity. The modern is more fragile. The traditional, though, is not, I didn't mean to ever get the impression that it's impervious. The fact is that if you let your family down or if you let your, uh, your community down, they punish you, and you can maybe never get it back. Uh, it, it's, I would say it's bad to give any human being, or even you yourself, the ultimate validation. Right now you're doing okay, but if you, if you in any way fail, there's a, here's what Christians have. Uh, there's, a, there's a Bible verse that says, if, your heart, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. In other words, the more I believe in God, the more when my heart condemns me, I can say, who cares what my heart says? Um, here's what God says. And so I'm just saying at this point, what can I say? All I, all I can say is you're hitting your numbers. I, I don't know anybody who goes through life and always does that. So I would say you're in a position of perhaps, uh, uh, I would say you're more fragile than you probably feel. But that would be my critique of anybody who says, I'm not a Christian, but I'm actually quite happy. I would say, you're not ready for anything, I don't think. And what can you do? I don't think you can just say, well, I guess I got to become a Christian as a kind of you know, safety net or something. No, you can't. I'm just hoping today, tonight, you're hearing something that will make you think and that maybe in the, in the future you may have to have recourse to. Um, Tim, you highlighted how wonderful it is to be adored by someone that you adore and to imagine what if it's God. Um, this person says, why can't I just receive an identity from someone praiseworthy? Why does it have to be from God? Why can't it be from someone else that I admire? That's right. Well, yes, in fact, obviously, uh, that does work, again, provisionally. So, for example, 
um, uh, if you, there are people in your life, I mean, there might be peers or there might be people that you respect very much, and as long as you're satisfying them, they're telling you how great you are, and you feel great. By the way, by the way, and also, by the way, the romantic solution works for, can work to some degree. That's the thing I was talking about with uh, Ernest Becker. Um, you could fall in love with somebody, and uh, you know that, that, that old song, you're nobody till somebody loves you? Um, that's getting at the idea that if somebody I really adore adores me, then in a good marriage or in a good love relationship, boy, that can go a long way because it, it mimics, I would say, the relationship with God. And it actually can do a pretty good job for a long time. But I think I may have mentioned this before. I can't remember here. I once heard a sermon some years ago where somebody was talking about this and, and said, uh, you know, what if, what if basically your meaning in life is another person that you adore and who you're married to? Uh, how, and I remember at one point he suddenly said, how will she uh, be able to help you when she's lying in a coffin? I mean, one of you is going to die. And if she, what if she dies first? And she's the source. The trouble with making your parents or your, or your spouse or some uh, respected person into the validator is, first of all, they die. At the very least, they die. Uh, secondly, they might abuse the power Thirdly, if you don't live up to them with them, they haven't died for your sins. I mean, if you're living for your career, and as long as you're doing well, maybe that's the last question, maybe your career is going well, but here's the point. If you ever fail it, the, your career can't die for your sins. Jesus can die for your sins. Jesus is the only Savior who can die for your sins. He's the only identity source that can really, truly forgive you. Otherwise, I'm afraid all the other identity sources can be pretty cruel. So I'm actually trying to show you your fragility, that's all. I'm trying to show you uh, precariousness. Uh, I don't expect you're all here because you're really unhappy. I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to show you a more, how do I say, industrial strength kind of identity that you should at least have some idea that exists. Um, there are multiple questions around, uh, well, kind of in the essence of this um, question. It's a little long, so but I'm going to go with it. It says, if the Christian identity says that grace is central and therefore, there is no, and therefore there is no achieving needed, then won't that lead me to live a life that is complacent or a self-centered life since there is no motivation for others? From what I can tell, secular humanism is at least honest that life is about oneself, and if oneself wants to help others, then great, and if not, fine. How does the Christian faith lead to a genuine identity bent toward others in light of the lack of achieving in it? Yeah. Okay, so the motivation for, uh, your, by the way, you're absolutely right, it makes, what, what's happening is most people, their motivation for achieving or for living a good life, or how did he put it, or she put it at the beginning, if I... In other words, if I, grace, I mean, what, what's the... If the Christian identity says that grace is central and therefore no achieving is needed... Right, okay, okay. So um, let me give you... There's two or three ways in which you could be motivated to achieve. One is fear. I've got to achieve so I, people don't dislike me. Or, you know... So some people are driven by fear. Uh, I've got to achieve, I've got to achieve. Some people are saying, if I achieve, then that way people will like me and I'll like myself. In fact, that's how 
most people are, that you build your, your sense of self-worth on your achievements. So your achievements are, even when you help the little old lady across the street, why are you doing that? And you say, well, because I just want to love her. Well, yeah, but you also probably want to feel like I'm the kind of person that helps the little old lady across the street. So there, there's a sense in which fear, uh, a desire for a good self-image. Uh, now, let me just say, as gently as I possibly can, those are ultimately selfish motives. Uh, so an awful lot of uh, motivation for achievement in life is basically selfish. What if, by the way, what if, though, I, it wasn't just that God has forgiven me. Now, this is one of the problems with, with, with this series. Um, I mentioned this last week, and I better mention it this week. When a Christian understands that you're saved freely, do you remember it, the reason why we're the righteousness of God in him is because he was made sin. That means God doesn't just say, oh, you know, if you turn to me, I'll just, I'll just wipe off all your, you know, your slate clean. Uh, it was costly. In other words, the, the, somehow, and we don't understand it completely, the Son of God lost his glory, came to earth, pays the debt himself, cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? does all that for us. And what that does now is, what, now that I know what he did for me, I want to achieve. That is, I want to love people, I want to care for people, I want to help people, I want to do all this stuff. Not because if I do it, I'll go to heaven, or if I do it, I'll feel good about myself, or if I do it, I'll have a great self-image. All those are selfish, by the way. In all those cases, I'm actually not doing it for the little old lady. I'm doing it for me. But now, I'm do I just want to, I want to re resemble the one who did this for me. I want to please the one who did it for me. In other words, I'm not doing it now to get anything. I'm actually doing it to get more of God, as it were. My, my motivation changes. Uh, it's almost like this. In the beginning, I probably, well, uh, when Kathy and I, my wife Kathy and I wrote a book, Meaning of Marriage, and what we said is that in the very beginning when you hold the hand, the very first time you hold the, the, you know, her hand, the first time I kissed Kathy, I got this incredible, you know, wonderful uh, experience. Of, and now if I kiss her or hold her hand, I don't get the same experience 40 years later, 45 years later. And you say, oh, what a shame, you know, you've lost the first bloom. No, not really. We now realize in the very beginning the reason we were really excited the first time we kissed was it was ego. It was like this woman or this man who I really wanted to like me likes me. And what happens over the years, in the very beginning, you, you love the person because you feel like this person is going to satisfy me or if somebody like this is with me, then I'll feel good about myself. After a while, you start to love them for who they are, at least you hope to. In the beginning, you actually love them for yourself. In the end, you start loving them for who they are, just for who they are. And not because they're a means to an end, they're an end in itself. My achievement as a Christian, increasingly as I go on, I do the things I do just because I want more of God. Not that I want things from God. Not that I want heaven or all that stuff. I've already got that. It's all guaranteed in Christ. Now I do it just, you know, I help the little lady for the little lady's sake, for God's sake, for love's sake. So there's a, there's a transformation of motivation that I think is extraordinarily positive, and that's what happens in the Christian identity. Next question. You mentioned that Christianity makes people secure in their identity and hence open to others. I appreciate the logic, 
but openness isn't often associated with evangelical Christians in particular. Why is this? Oh, I wish, okay. You know what? You're, um, <laughs> well, listen, you're inviting me to talk a little bit more about why Christianity should make you open. Then I'll come back and try. The question is really trying to say why are, why are Christians so inconsistent? But let me, let me, let me go along this. Um, the, um, I mentioned, well, I already mentioned part of this. One of the reasons why we have trouble with people who are different is it's a way for us to bolster our fragile sense of self-worth by comparing ourselves with others. So if, by the way, my identity is based on being really hardworking, if I have a lot of pride that I work harder than anybody else, that I'm probably going to despise people I think are lazy. I'm probably just going to despise them. And it's what my, why? Because I, I'm not open to them. And in fact, I, I just loathe them. I don't want to have anything to do with them because my, my, they don't have my identity factor. And whenever your identity is based on performance, then whatever that identity factor is, whatever your performance identity factor is, you tend to despise and look down at everybody else. It's also true racially. Um, if, if you're... If your identity is mainly found in your race, if you're actually proud uh, more of your race than of anything else, then you have to look down at people of other races. But let me, let me give you an example, true example, that a number of years ago, I'm, I'm a Christian minister, and I was visiting with a church in Soweto, uh, which, of course, is one of the townships, a very poor area in South Africa, in Johannesburg area. And I met a woman who would, was a kind of mother, uh, you might, I, we call her mother in Israel, meaning she was one of the leaders of this church. Uh, she was older, uh, grandmother, had been a single mother most of her life, was extraordinarily poor. But as I got to talk with her, I just came to see her as, in some ways, my superior. She was, she, her prayer, a spiritual superior, her prayer life was beyond mine, her faith was beyond mine. Afterwards, I realized something. If I wasn't a Christian, if my identity was not based in Christ, but my identity was actually based on being a successful professional in New York City, I would have met her and I might have felt pity for her, but I couldn't possibly have been open to seeing her as a superior. I couldn't have because she didn't have my identity factor. I mean, she was, you know, she was, you know, I was white, she was black. I was, uh, you know, I was professional, she was poor. I, I could have sympathy, but how could I respect her? But you see, when I'm a Christian first and I'm a white man second, I'm a Christian first and I'm an American second. Because my, even though, of course, when you become a Christian, if you're Chinese, you're still Chinese. You don't become something else. But if your Christianity is the most fundamental layer in your identity, your self-worth is based more in what Christ says about you than anything else, what that does is it just relativizes your racial identity a little bit. It doesn't change it. It, it doesn't efface it, but it demotes it. You hear that? It doesn't efface it. It demotes it. And so my, my Christianity made it possible for me to be open and look at her and say, this woman is better than me in so many, many ways. Uh, so now, having told you, there is amazing resources in this Christian identity for being openness to different difference and being open to other people. Now, when you ask why are Christians so many not living that way, 
It's, I, I, the last thing I said, and I'm really glad that you're giving me an opportunity to elaborate on it. Um, actually, your questions are always good because they usually ask me about things that I didn't have time to, to talk about during the talk. Uh, you have to live into your Christian identity, and a lot of Christians don't. Now, what do I mean? Let me give you a quick example. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. It's a place where um, Jesus sends his disciples out to heal, and he go, they go out and they start healing people of their diseases. He gives them power. And they actually even start casting out demons. So they come back, and Jesus says, how was it? And they say, Wow, Lord. I mean, they'd said it in Greek, but I forget. That's my translation. They said, wow, Lord, even the demons are subject to our name. So they were just filled with joy about their power. And he looks at them and he says, listen carefully, rejoice not that the demons are subject to your name, but that your names are written in heaven. Now, what he means is to say your names are written in heaven means you don't have to worry about ever going to heaven. They're all, you've already got a place there. See, most religions say you're saved by your good works, which means you don't know whether you're going to heaven until the end of your life because you have to earn it. But Christianity says, no, no, once you become a Christian, you know you're going. You know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Jesus says, why are you rejoicing over the fact you've had a good day? Why are you rejoicing over the fact that you have this power? Tomorrow you may have a bad, bad day. And then how are you going to feel? He says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice not in your success. Rejoice not in your power, but that your name's written in heaven. He's actually saying, you've got to stop. You've got to keep your heart from uh, resting in these other things when you've got this incredible, op- this incredible resource. Rejoice in my regard of you. Rejoice in my love for you. Now, he wouldn't be saying that to his disciples unless it was something that it takes a long time to, to develop and do. And so any, when you say you've seen lots and lots of Christians that are not open to others, why? Well, then they're rejoicing in the wrong, I mean, even though they, they're not rejoicing that their names are written in heaven, they're rejoicing in their career, they're rejoicing in their race, they're rejoicing in their class, they're rejoicing in all kinds of things that Jesus says, don't do it. Why? That means because Christians can still live in older identities. They can live in out of a traditional or a modern identity, even when the Christian identity is there a little bit, but it's really not dominating them. And that's the reason why Christians don't, don't have the kind of transformed lives they ought to. All right. Um, Tim, next question is, how do you reconcile identity for those who have been abused, whose identities are not based on what they do, but on what has been done to them? years of therapy and adopting a modern sense of identity, um, you know, um, basically experiencing help from looking within um, has helped them. What is the Christian view on this? Yeah. I, I, you know, my, I have a tendency to give long answers. I think I'll give a short one to this one. Uh, partly because, generally speaking, what I think what a lot of therapy tries to do with an abused person is abused people, to a great degree, have have experienced the, the dark side of the traditional identity. So to have, a, you know, verbal abuse where a family member tells you you're scum, you're nothing, that person is, is acting as your validator. Uh, if it, it could be a father or a mother toward a child. It could be a, a spouse. And along with it can come physical violence. But as you know, the physical violence, as bad as that is, is... Um, 
there's a message that's coming across, and that is you're nothing, you're dirt, you're this, you're that. And uh, I've, what I said, I tried to say, is the modern identity, I think, has developed because of the abuses of the traditional identity. It can be suffocating, and when you give your parents or you give your community that kind of power over telling you who you are, and they abuse it, they use it against you, it's terrible. So I think most therapy, uh, I even gave you a, a little speech in, out of that article, I said most therapists are really trying to help the abused person by moving from a traditional to modern identity. I'm just here to say, and I told you this is going to be a short answer, so I will, is that I think the Christian identity is a better counter to the traditional, pardon me, the Christian identity is a much better antidote to the traditional identity than the modern. I think the modern was an effort to get at what the Christian identity gives you. Um, Tim, again, you talked about how um, Christians receive their identity from God, receive God's love. Um, this person is asking a little more clarity on this, I think. Uh, it says, does God love us for who we are, or does he love Jesus, and therefore us, only by proxy? Well, um, it's more the second than the first, I would say. In other words, the fact is that it's only um, when we're in Christ that he loves us perfectly. But here's the question. Why would he have, why, why would Jesus have even come? Why would he have even come? There's this probably, maybe the most famous verses of the Bible is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Probably the second most famous verse is John chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so there must be a love, or, or they would, you know, in other words, Unless God loved us for who we were, you know, or as we were, it would be a little better. He loves it. When, when my children were little, um, of course, this doesn't happen now because they're all grown up and perfect. Uh, but, um, and some of you know some of them probably. But uh, <laughs> when my kids were little, when one was really acting out, acting up, doing badly, you know, doing, not doing well in school, misbehaving. Here's a weird thing, is even in, the, in a way, uh, you, those of you who are parents know, you end up starting, you're, in some ways, their misbehavior almost draws your love out more. You know, you get, you get, you, you spend a lot of time with them and you agonize over them and you, in some, in some ways, your love is activated by their misbehavior. Would you say I'm loving them for who they are? I, I would say it'd be better to say I'm loving them completely as they are. I'm loving them as they are. And so obviously when Jesus, uh, when, you know, the, God so loved the world, we were obviously in a very imperfect condition, but God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. So he obviously loves us as we are. But to love us perfectly the way we're talking about here to know that he completely delights in me, regardless of my ups and downs of my performance, that happens inside Christ. So the answer is both. I really appreciate the honesty in this question. Um, asking, how do you stay committed to a religion that doesn't bring you the joy and happiness you thought it would? I want to be happy. I became a Christian two years ago, but I struggle with Christianity because it has not brought me an identity of joy that I thought it would. None of that bright, hot, white light, as you said. I'm not really buying it anymore. All right. By the way, believe it or not, this is an easy question to answer because I can't answer it. it it's a little bit like saying, if, I was a, if you come to a doctor 
and you say, Doctor, um, I have a fever. Would you please treat it? The doctor's going to say, no, I can't just treat a fever. I mean, I obviously I give you a Tylenol or something like that, but I need to know what's causing the fever, all right? Something's wrong because you shouldn't have a fever, but, but I need to find out what it is, so they're going to do tests. So if you come and say, I become a Christian some time ago, and none of the stuff or very little of the stuff that I thought would happen to me or in my heart has happened, uh, how do I, you know, that's the question. The answer is you're actually kind of coming and saying, I've got a fever, would you treat it? And, and I can't. I'd have, there's, there's so many different possible reasons why something like that can happen. Now, I need to be honest and say it can certainly happen. But it can be stuff outside of you. I mean, I, I would say, by the way, it depends on what's going on outside of you and inside of you, and I, I'm not going to go through the list of all the possibilities right here. Uh, I am concerned. I would say that you ought to uh, not give up, but that you ought to try to talk to either Christian friends or church leaders of some kind that you feel like that are referred to you, just like a doctor, that you can trust. You don't just walk into any place. You, 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 you get referrals. And you, you ask people. You try to find satisfied customers and, and, uh, and, and that way. So I would say you've got a fever, and I, I'm sure it can be treated, but you need to find somebody who can help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, you talk about boldness and humility through a Christian identity. Can you speak more to that? If we are irreducibly social and we need, to, need each other's affirmation, is it wrong that I still want an identity that is bulletproof enough to withstand personal and professional critique? I'm tired of constantly playing back feedback over and over again in my head, even if that feedback is true. Read me the very first part of it again, the very first. You talk about boldness and humility through a Christian identity. Can you speak more to that? And also they added, is it wrong that I still want an identity that is bulletproof enough to withstand personal and professional critique? Well, now, uh, well, listen, the second question, I would say, this is the identity. No, you're not wrong to want that. This is the identity that eventually can get you there. It doesn't happen, I don't, you know, it, it never happens perfectly in this life. But certainly, if there's one you know, if there's one uh, identity that would be uh, at least pretty impervious to professional criticism, it would be one to say, I don't, in the end, I am not defined by what people say about me. And there's a place in 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, uh, listen to this carefully, I'll break it down. It's fascinating. He says, I care, what, I, I care little what you say or what any human court says about me. And then he says, indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's Christ who judges me. Now look carefully. First he says, I don't care what anybody thinks. Ooh, you say, that's, wow, that's freedom. And you expect him to say, all I care about is what I think. He doesn't do that. He says, I don't care what you think. And then he says, I don't care what I think. He says, I don't judge myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. He's, he, what he's saying is that if you're the ultimate validator of yourself, you could become a monster. Hitler, I'm sure, didn't have a conscience problem, right? Uh, you can be too down on yourself. He says, it's the Lord that judges me. So what he's actually saying is, I don't care what other people think, but I don't even obsess myself because I realize 
that the Lord loves me, and he's the only person whose who's, uh, uh, verdict counts. So, so absolutely, that is a way to get a more, I, I, I think it's by far the, most, the best way to get an impervious uh, to criticism. I mean, just one thing about the bold humility thing. The traditional, <clears throat> the traditional identity is self-renunciation. That is, you say no to your deepest desires, and therefore you, uh, you sublimate them to the, to the family. And the modern identity is, Christian, is self-actualization. It's straight up. It's like you decide what is going to make you happy, and you go for it, and you don't let anybody stop you. Christian, the Christian identity is self-transformation. Remember what I, uh, let me, this is probably the last question, isn't it, or not? You got one more? Okay. We have time for one more. Uh, remember when I said, St. Augustine said, that only when in, in your love uh, uh, melts me so that I come together. And what it means, what Augustine says is, the things I was looking for in the gold medal and the things I was looking for in romance, I find in God. And so what that does is it demotes all the other things that I wanted so much. I still want a good career, but it's not, it's not the end of the world anymore if my career is not bad, not, doesn't go well. I always wanted this or that, but it's not the, it's, I don't need it in the end. It's a self-transformation. So it doesn't puff you up like self-actualization, and it doesn't drive you into the ground and make you hate yourself like self-renunciation. It's something very, very different. And it mixes boldness and humility together. Uh, it keeps your head from getting high, uh, getting big over success, and it keeps you from ever getting all that upset about failure. All right, Tim, just ending it on a more personal note. Was there ever a time in your life when your identity as a Christian didn't seem to help you? Or what about a time that it did? Was well, certainly. There... Yeah, I, mean, I actually gave you an example of uh, where I, was, I became a Christian at the age of 20. And um, I... Uh, Immediately, uh, just fairly soon after that, felt a, a call to the ministry. I gave an example of a, a, a teacher who I had taken a course from in theological school that I really admired, but I didn't think he hardly knew I existed. And then two years later, I met him, and he was affirming me and all that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's face it, what, what that guy was saying about me was more, certainly more important. I was three or four years into being a Christian was much more important than what Jesus <laughs> thought about me. Um, but you, it takes time. So one night, and by the way, I'm a Presbyterian, not a Pentecostal, so I, I want you to realize this story. This is the last question, right? That you find this story interesting. One night, um, I was, uh, uh, I mean, every Saturday night I would just, it was, I struggled because I, I, I didn't like my sermon, and basically you uh, for ministers, unless you are really living in Christ, unless you are rejoicing not that people think your sermons are great, but that your names are written in heaven, uh, you just sort of, it, it's just, it's a, it's a horrible experience to not feel like I don't have anything. And you go up there on Sunday and you don't know whether you're any good. One night I was actually reading Romans 1.16 where it says, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Okay. That is, he who through faith in Christ is accepted by God shall live. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And suddenly, I almost heard a voice. See, I'm a Presbyterian. That's what I mean. That's why I have to say I almost heard a voice. <laughs> and what it said was, 
Yes, and he who through preaching is righteous will die every Saturday night. <laughs> and you know, I've never been quite, I'll put it this way, that was a, that, I turned a corner at that point. I turned a corner at that point. And sometimes I would come out to preach and I had to in my heart look out there and say, I really don't care what you think, but I really, really, really want to help you. And that, you see, that's a way of living in. It, took, it takes a long time. And, uh, but you really can live in it. It's very liberating over the, over the period of time. Wow. God tells jokes. That's good to know. <laughs> Wait a minute. I said I almost Come heard full it. circle. To, oh, that's right. Uh, well, that's all we have for questions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Questioning Christianity podcast. And remember, you can find more content to help you explore the claims of Christianity by visiting gospelandlife.com slash explore. That's gospelandlife.com slash explore. The Questioning Christianity talks in this series were recorded in 2019 in New York City, where Dr. Keller spoke with a local live gathering made up of attendees who did not identify as Christian and their Christian friends who invited them.